You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Um, so, uh, welcome. Good afternoon. My name is Tom Carver. I'm the Vice President for Communications and Strategy at Carnegie Endowment. And uh, thank you for joining us for the launch of the Hill's very exciting Global Affairs blog. Um, as America's oldest international affairs think tank, it's always a pleasure to have a new player in the foreign policy debate and an important new voice. And I think today's launch, I think you'll all agree, could hardly come at a more propitious time. The international order is going, undergoing a period of enormous change um, with the United States recently ending a war in Iraq, about to wind another one down in Afghanistan, the Middle East changing its landscape, the Euro crisis altering the configuration of Europe, um, and meanwhile new markets are emerging all the time, and Asia continues to grow ever wealthier and more powerful. It's a really very interesting time to be in foreign affairs. Anyone who goes through Heathrow has no doubt seen those HSBC advertisements that that are everywhere that say things like there are more people, five times as many people studying English in China as there are people in England. <laughs> I, I love that sort of counterintuitive thought about how the world is changing. Um, I always find myself drawn whenever I see them. So I think all these developments are obviously having a profound impact on American power, and they demand smart and timely reporting. And I've been reading... Julian's Global Affairs blog for the last few weeks, and I think Hugo and Julian should both be commended for a really great product. Um, it occupies a very valuable and important niche in looking at how Congress and you know, all of the United States government really is handling, or perhaps not handling, the key foreign policy issues of the day. And I think as we enter an election year in which domestic issues are going to feature very prominently, it's all the more important, really, to have a player that will maintain the conversation about the momentous events beyond America's borders. Um, so with that said, I just want to turn over the stage to Hugo Gurdon, the editor-in-chief of The Hill and a, an old friend from the old country, for a few words on the blog and how it came about. Hugo, welcome to Carnegie. Uh, Tom, and uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, uh, as you heard, I'm editor of The Hill and of thehill.com, and thanks very much for being here today for our distinguished speaker, Congressman Mike Rogers, Republican of Michigan, and, and also to help us launch The Hill's new global affairs blog. Um, I especially want to thank uh, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and Tom Carver for suggesting this occasion and, and making it possible. Um, the Global Affairs blog emerged from the way that The Hill developed into an important source of uh, federal political news. People getting their news online filter stories, for example, with most recently Twitter feeds. So they receive what they expect to be interested in and exclude what they do not. And we responded to this trend toward personalized, demand-driven news by developing policy-specific policy blogs, uh, specialized news within the panoply of the, our federal news coverage. Um, our blog, bloggers are given two challenges, in, in challenges in, in case you weren't aware, Julian, I'll make sure you know what they are. One is to provide information detailed enough and new enough to prompt policy experts such as the people in this room to return frequently to check it out, check what we have. 
and to make refined, even rather dry areas of policy compelling enough that hundreds of thousands of new readers are drawn into the site every month. We want this to be something, uh, our blogs, to uh, be, uh, have detailed information about Washington, but not to seem remote from the rest of the world. Which is the st so I hope that when you go onto the blog, you'll see that we're succeeding in that. We believe that we are. And so we now have uh, specialized and fast-paced blogs reporting on the politics and policy of energy and environment, finance and economics, technology, defense, healthcare, and transportation with uh, what marketing people might call bite-sized items, we're letting people know what's happening when it's happening. And foreign policy is ripe for this kind of treatment. Many a traditional article about foreign policy uses a discursive tone to take a synopsis look at a trend. An analysis of this sort is invaluable, and we're very glad to have it in guest articles on the Global Affairs blog from think tank specialists and diplomats, and I hope that many of the people in this room would be interested in writing for it. But the core of the blog meets the growing demand for less mediated news. Many people want to know about foreign affairs developments as swiftly as they want to hear about developments in other policy areas. It can matter greatly when a single lawmaker signs on to a piece of legislation because that lawmaker might be key. We're going to report when that happens. It matters which senators are planning to join a CODEL and what they say when they get back. It matters which embassies are hiring lobbyists to help them improve their profile in Washington or to get their country off or onto one of the State Department lists. At random, I picked three stories that appeared in succession yesterday on the blog, and here are the headlines. Rubio takes the lead pressing China to ensure the safety of activist Chen's family. Two, WTO rules against dolphin-safe tuna labels. Three, Obama okay, okay sanctions against transition spoilers in Yemen. So as you can see, we want to range very widely. Like the many lobbying firms where staff monitor who says what or who votes which way on Capitol Hill, and like the booming political intelligence industry, our blogs, including Global Affairs blog, monitor Washington's every move and vote for those who need to know. I believe we're the only congressional publish publication to do this for international affairs. Finally, as a former foreign correspondent, I have a more personal interest in the new blog. The Carnegie homepage yesterday carried a story about Sudan plunging back into civil war. It reminded me of my own stories in the Sudan in the early 1980s when I reported that John Garang and the SPLA were taking up arms against the Khartoum government once again. That story was about a conflict that a prime minister of a former epoch might have described as a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. But it began a process that eventually split one country into two and brought the name Darfur to the attention of the world. Covering global affairs shows a breadth of interest proper to Washington and for a news organization covering federal politics in the detail we do. Our new blog is mostly written by Julian, who uh, is going to be talking with our guest of honor soon. His interest in global affairs is longstanding. Uh, he, was, uh, he was in the French diplomatic corps. Um, I'm told he's not a spy, which would be, of course, a great... <laughs> Uh, relief to the congressman from, who heads the intelligence panel. It's now my great pleasure to introduce Representative Mike Rogers of Michigan. Congressman Rogers was first elected in 2000. Before coming to Washington, he was, amongst other things, a company commander in the U.S. Army and a special agent of the FBI. He sits on the Energy and Commerce Committee and is chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. The Intel panel is the primary committee responsible for authorizing the funding and overseeing the execution of U.S. intelligence activities. 
Congressman Rogers is, is known for his willingness to work in a bipartisan fashion, and his fiscal 2013 intelligence authorization bill is due to be marked up today. Today. Well, we're very glad you're with us here today, at least for a short while, not in the committee room. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Congressman Mike Rogers. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. The good news is the markup is complete. Uh, and yes, thank you. Uh, 19 to 0. So who said you couldn't uh, have bipartisanship uh, in the Congress in Washington, D.C.? I want to thank my, my partner publicly, uh, Dutch Ruppersberger, the ranking member. Uh, we worked exceptionally well together. Uh, and we passionately believe that national security should be uh, as nonpartisan as you can get it. Uh, the issues are just uh, that important. So we've been able to continue that tradition. Uh, this will be the third uh, authorization bill after a six-year hiatus of getting no authorization bills done. And they are, uh, uh, again, this past uh, 19 to 0, all thoughtful members, all putting their heart and soul and trying to come to the right conclusion on where we go in the intelligence community in uh, the fiscal year of, of 2013. So hats off to them. There's your bit of news. You'll be the first blogger out of the shoot, 19-0. Not, not quite reported yet. Uh, you know, I want to talk for a minute about the, uh, uh, the threat. And thank you, by the way, to Carnegie for doing this. Uh, and thanks for the Hill. You know, there's, uh, for those of us who are passionate about national security and foreign affairs, there is not a lot of places you can go on a daily basis to try to get the latest and greatest, unless you're the intelligence chairman, <laughs> but that doesn't matter. Uh, so we would like to try to get other members engaged in the discussions and debates uh, and thoughts on the national security posture. As many people believe today, I think, because of the winding down in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, that the world is a safer, easier, no problem kind of place moving forward. And they have a lot of really weighty issues that they engage in every day on the domestic front, all important stuff. But we also can't take our eye off the ball on our foreign affairs and national security posture around the world. You know, the, you look, uh, just a, a quick glimpse, you have North Korea, who just most recently uh, was trying to launch a satellite, and I'm sure that's all that was, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, uh, testing their IC, ICBM uh, missile system. You know, they're, they're increasingly provocation to the south, very, very concerning. And certainly their transition, their, their government transition there recently to a very untested leader in a very difficult time there leads folks like me to lose a little bit of sleep. You look at uh, Russia, who is now reengaged uh, in the world affairs in a way that they want to be influential. They've just launched a new series of nuclear submarines, something they hadn't done since the early 90s back in the business of trying to project power around the world. China has issued proclamations about uh, not uh, encroaching on their territorial waters in the South China Sea, and a place that this country has been sailing and protecting commercial routes since we've been a country. And some 40% of world trade flows through that South China Sea. China has spent 13% a year increase in their, in their defense spending since 1989. 13% on average every year, and that's the public number that they promote on their defense spending. Uh, launching their first aircraft carrier, engaging in silent, warf uh, silent submarines uh, to expand their power base and clearly have an interest in 
uh, and have been aggressive about their positions around the world. And maybe many of you have seen the new, the latest Chinese North Korean incident with the fishermen. Certainly raises, gives us all pause uh, and concern about uh, uneasiness on that peninsula, not just between North and South Korea, but now China as well. You have the Iran, who is clearly in defiance of uh, international will and, and resolution on their creating a, a nuclear weapons program. Uh, continue to take a pretty tough stance despite really tough and biting sanctions uh, and certainly leading to, uh, I think, a hard choice for Israel coming up uh, probably within this year, uh, if not shorter, uh, on what they may or may not do uh, to what uh, they think is a, an existential threat to their very existence. You have uh, what's going on in Yemen. You have al-Qaeda. Uh, is still uh, alive and well. Certainly, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb is uh, now one of the leading financiers uh, by kidnapping and ransom. Uh, you have Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, who is actually holding ground, which if you followed any of the debate between Zawahiri and UBL, that was one of the big discussions. Zawahiri always said we should hold ground toward the caliphate, and UBL said too much work. We ought to just continue our political uh, efforts through terrorist activities. And UBL is gone, Zawahiri is in charge, and they're holding ground in South of Yemen. I always find that fairly interesting. Uh, the challenges keep going on and on, and you can certainly take a look in Latin America and understand the challenges we have there. Um, Chavez is clearly interested, and in, in, I believe, helping finance certain operations of the FARC, encouraging bad behavior all across the continent uh, to try to make sure that there is a destabilizer to U.S. interests in the region. Um, this is not a day I would wake up and say the world is a safer, better place on total. It is just more complicated day by day uh, and something we're just going to have to pay attention to. So when people talk about a peace dividend in Iraq and Afghanistan, I throw up that red caution card uh, and let them know all of the challenges we face. And oh, by the way, did I talk about loose nukes, right? I figure if I can't sleep at night, you all should not be able to sleep at night uh, either. And then on the front, uh, on the biggest national security threat to this country that I have ever seen that we are not prepared for as a nation, cyber security. I have never seen such an exponential rise in the threat to this country's both intellectual property uh, and our ability to stave off uh, a disruption of massive proportions uh, and or also known as a cyber attack. Uh, and those problems are alive and well. You know, f about five years ago, I was on the committee, and I remember getting the brief the first time about this emerging threat of cybersecurity. It was already there. It was happening. People were paying attention to it. But they said, you know, something, we're seeing a change. Something's changed. Something different is happening. And from that brief about five years ago, it has been exponentially worse. And the private sector is just woefully unprepared even today, for what's coming at them. I think there are two companies left in the world that have intellectual property as a part of their business model. Those that have been hacked and know it, and those that have been hacked and don't know it. There is not much left when you talk about network security and what nation states like China are doing uh, to our ability to have an economic prosperity that works to the future. I've never seen a nation state gear its military and intelligence services 
toward the sole purpose of stealing economic property to return it back to their country, to reprogram it, and directly compete against the very companies that they've stolen it from. And imagine the benefit of that. No R&D, no innovative cost, no mistakes about implementation. That's all been done. When you steal that and participate in that, that is an economic policy of disastrous proportions for the victim. And that's us. And it is happening at a breathtaking pace. A breathtaking pace. Every day in the committee, there is a new update on a company that has lost more intellectual property. And they're all over the map. We've seen them be interested, uh, we have seen them interested, excuse me, that was great English for you reporters, right? <clears throat> we have seen them interested in pesticide formulas, pesticide formulas, pharmaceutical formulas, certainly communications gear, software, uh, defense-oriented materials of all sorts. Uh, and the list goes on and on. It, it, there's nothing too small for them to engage in this, I think, unprecedented economic espionage that we have ever seen in the history of the world. The director of the National Security Agency claims that he believes this is the largest transfer of wealth at any time in the history of the world by theft. And they're directly competing against our future economy. Remember how we beat the Soviet Union at the end of the day? They could not keep up with technology. They couldn't keep up with our military prowess. We outspent them. Well, imagine if our economic prosperity begins to dip, even though we know we have these new challenges and new technology we're going to have to invest in to keep our nation safe. But we also find ourselves in a position that we can't keep up. We've seen this uh, play before, and we know how it ends, and not good. So we said about a year ago, in a bipartisan way, what do we do? We know that criminals are after our personal data to steal it blind. People are fairly aware of that. Matter of fact, just today alone, 300,000 times, one credit card company will be attempted to be uh, hacked and that information stolen for a profitable gain by a criminal enterprise. By, by the way, likely to have happened in Eastern Europe. Many times affiliated, we believe, uh, with Russian, former Russian intelligence officials. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Unbelievable. So you have the criminal problem that's alive and well. You've all seen it. There's certainly programs for that. Then you have this military attack. And by the way, it is now in doctrine around the world that you will prep the battlefield by a cyber attack. We watched Russia do it when they went into Georgia. Uh, we saw North Korea make an effort to do it in South Korea just as a test run not all that long ago. We have seen it in other places around the world where people, their military operations are just probing a little bit to find weaknesses so that they can have that catastrophic event cause a catastrophic failure. And I'm talking about command and control systems for U.S. military. I'm talking about financial institutions, other things that might bring panic and chaos leading up to any military attack. Unfortunately, we live in the age where that is a reality. So the dynamics have changed. And by the way, this is the cheapest investment foreign militaries can make into causing problems for a country like the United States. So you see a rise not just in Russian capability and Chinese capability, but Iranian capability and North Korean capability as well. They get it and they're on to it. So our challenge is this. Can we close that window quick enough and prepare ourselves for what we know is happening every day? 
And what's happening every day, and America still doesn't know it, is we are today involved in a cyber war. Today. It's happening today. Hundreds of thousands of times, our government will be attempted to be penetrated by foreign services to cause some difficulties, manipulate data, break systems, but also on our commercial front. And it's not just our defense industry, as I said. So what do we do about it? About a year ago, we came in together, bipartisan way, and we said, what's the first thing that we can do that's easy is take our, our, our intelligence services, do an excellent job of going overseas and trying to figure out what the bad guys are doing, right? We've done that since the Revolutionary War. It's a good idea if you want to win the fight. They're very good at it. They collect types of information, malicious source code, other things, that they have to protect government networks. And then they apply that to our government networks so it's much more difficult for nation states and, by the way, non-nation state actors to try to get into our government systems. Wouldn't it be great if we could take that information, which is currently prohibited by law, and they need new authority, and allow them to share that with the private sector and engage them in what they're already doing, which is trying to protect their networks already. Happens already, every day. But what, wouldn't it be great if we could just give them that source code, that malicious source code information, and say, you don't even know this is out there because you haven't seen it yet, maybe? Or maybe it got by you, you didn't notice it. But here's stuff that you need to be looking for to protect your networks. And then we're done. You know, when, uh, as an old FBI agent, if I would get some information that somebody was going to get kidnapped uh, or robbed tomorrow at 2 o'clock, I felt I had the obligation of picking up the phone and saying, hey, you're going to get robbed or kidnapped at 2 o'clock. You need to take some precautions. Right now, we can get that information, and we're prohibited by law from picking up the phone and saying, you're going to get stolen everything, every ounce of value of your company, billions of dollars, is getting ready to go away or be attacked and shut down. Or NASDAQ, you've got a real problem coming at you. Here's what you do to protect yourself. It only made sense to us to say, all right, let's fix that law. Let's allow them to do that. I don't think the government should monitor the system. I don't think the government should protect the system. I think they ought to just provide, we call it the secret sauce, so that you can apply that information to your own network security and save the day. Sounds pretty easy, right? It's never all that easy. So we, we spent a year, we met with hundreds of organizations, and I always said if I could get the Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, and New York City on the same bill, all the financial institutions, we'd have something. And you know what? We did it in this. Everybody came aboard on this. The coalition was big and growing. Our coalition is over 3 million businesses total. Said that's the right way to do it. No new regulation, no, no government standards that may or may not work. Just let us share that information so we can protect our networks. Good idea. Well, it passed the House, 100 and, or 248 to 168, with a huge bipartisan margin. So we're well on our way. Uh, still have some difficulties. The President of the United States had issued a, well, I don't know, a suggestion that he may or may not veto the bill uh, on issues that we don't understand quite yet. Uh, but interestingly enough, uh, just this last week, the administration announced that they were going to expand something called the DIB project, where they have about, they had somewhere about 17 defense contractors that they were sharing threat information with because they had a relationship with the government. They just announced they're going to expand that to 1,000. 
So if that doesn't make you scratch your head, only in Washington, D.C. could this happen, that they said they didn't like that bill that gave them the authority to share information with the private sector, but the week after it passed, they expanded it to 1,000 companies who already have contracts with the government. So all the people who do business with the government, you're going to be in good shape. Uh, for the vast majority of companies that do not, good luck. You're on your own. We just got to, I think we can get through this. We're going to, I'm working very well with the Senate counterparts. But I will tell you, this is something that we must do. The National Security Agency director a, a few months ago said we had somewhere between 12 and 24 months before we have a catastrophic cyber event in the United States. 12 to 24 months, a catastrophic cyber attack. Now, if I told you that somebody was preparing to launch missiles at us within 12 to 24 months, you can imagine the kinds of things we would do to protect ourselves and get ready for it. Why aren't we more fired up about the fact that we know something pretty awful is coming? We know that a whole bunch of bad actors have the capability and the intent not to do something to protect ourselves. Well, we think we're getting close. I think I can work with the Senate. We're going to get this thing done. Uh, but again, it is a huge challenge for us. And most average Americans understand the criminal threat. I don't think we as a nation understand this espionage and attack threat even close to what the capabilities are. So with that, I, uh, again, I want to thank Carnegie for uh, lowering your standards and having a member of Congress as your first guest at the, uh, the rollout here for, uh, for the Hill. Uh, I appreciate that opportunity, and I look forward to, uh, matter of fact, before my, my daily briefs, I think I'm going to read the blog so I can uh, get the real intel about what's going on. Because, you know, those French intelligence folks are pretty good. That's what I hear. That's the rumor going around town. But uh, thank you for that, and, and uh, I guess we'll take some time for some questions and do that. Great. Thank you very, very much. Well, thanks very much for joining us. I, I know you have to run to votes pretty quickly, so I'm just going to jump in, and then we'll open it up for a few questions if we have time. Um, I wanted to say it's been pointed out that getting Osama bin Laden sort of shown a positive light on your committee in particular and, and yourself at the same time, with uh, Senator Luger's primary defeat, there's been a lot of talk about um, sort of the uh, Congress's diminished role in foreign affairs. And I was wondering if we could get your thoughts a little bit about whether you think the White House and the bureaucracy are kind of getting too much deference in matters of war and diplomacy now. I mean, I, I, I believe it's quite clear in the Constitution that we have a role and an important role in foreign affairs, uh, and we need to engage in it. The only time you lose that authority is when you just cede it by not being involved. And it's a hard thing. Americans are not all that interested these days. I come from a district that's hit pretty hard economically. I, we build cars in my district. We build the CTS Cadillac in my district. How many have one of those? <laughs> See me after. Get you a great deal on the CTS Cadillac. Uh, so when you, you talk about the economy, that's where they're at. That's, and I, I get it. You're worried about putting food on your table. It's pretty hard to be having this imaginative thought about what's going on in, in uh, the rest of the world. And so I think it's our job and our responsibility to engage in that, to push the administration, to pull the administration, to work with the administration when it comes to matters of national security. And I think we've shown we, we can do that. I supported the president uh, on his efforts in Libya uh, because I looked at the national security posture and thought it was the best interest of the United States and the surge in Afghanistan and other things. So it doesn't have to be partisan. And it should be collaborative when we're talking about establishing our national security framework and posture around the world. doesn't mean we're always going to agree. 
And that's where the administration doesn't like it when members of Congress speak up. But that's just part of our system, and I think it's a valuable part of our system. And that's got to be self-driven by Congress. I don't, there's no, we haven't ceded an authority by statute. We have ceded authority by not being engaged in the topic and discussion with the administration. And we've tried to change that on our committee. That's especially true in matters of war, obviously. Now, you were quoted this week in a Wall Street Journal uh, story on drones in Turkey and kind of raising questions about sharing some of that information with our erstwhile allies in Turkey, Afghanistan, Pakistan. What are your thoughts on whether we should do that, you know, who we can trust? And... Well, I think every nation is different. Every intelligence service is different. We have liaison partnerships with a whole host of nations, and for good reason. Some that aren't all that friendly to us on policy, but uh, we, all have, we can always find a common interest when it comes to their national security and our national security. Uh, and as a security committee, we ought, our job should be to find those relationships and those values that they hold when it comes to national security that protects our national security, if that makes any sense whatsoever. And so we, there are things that we can share and should share when it comes to uh, their ability to target people who are either going to do harm to their, their nation state or ours. Uh, and a lot of these countries are pipelines, you know, super highways of terrorism, uh, where people are using to, to pass through or plan or recruit or finance their operations. In cases where we have the information, we hope that we would share it with them. If they have proven they'll do something with it in accordance with the law, pretty important, uh, and if they won't disclose it beyond their intelligence services or their police services to do the work they have to do, also I think pretty important, uh, and uh, if... Uh, if they have the capability to actually conduct the operation. Sometimes we have to act unilaterally because it's in our best interest. Uh, it's always better if we can get a liaison partner to help us. Doesn't always, that formula doesn't always work. And so if, if that meets that criteria, I think that's, that's exactly how we approach it. Uh, any questions in the audience? Yep. Sir, in the front, can you get a mic? Right there. Thank you so much, and uh, uh, my name is uh, Dr. Sheikh Ahmad Subhi Mansour. I'm uh, the president of the International Quranic Center here in Virginia, and uh, our center represents the Quranist Muslim who are against Muslim brothers and Salafism and Wahhabism and all the fanatics who are killing the people randomly. We work against them since 1980s, and uh, when I came here in 2001, uh, I resumed our work here. And one of our projects uh, is online war against uh, tourists. Online war against tourists, against their sites, against what they are saying, uh, uh, by uh, exploring them, uh, by analyzing what they are saying, so and so. Uh, we are doing this by our bare hands in our website, Al-Quran Center, and um, I myself, I have my Arabic uh, TV program uh, in the name of Exposing Salafism. What I wanted to say is, until now, until now, there is no, uh, as far as I know, there is no uh, effort from the American side to uh, share in this war of ideas against uh, tourism and against this fanatic uh, Online war 
you know, online, now internet now produce the Egyptian revolution and other, uh, and now it reveals, it reveals after Mubarak step down, uh, what is under the table is become known now salafism and different trends and different uh, leaders and different sects. So and maybe Mr. Congressman yes, can uh, answer yes, your yes, concerns. Yes, what I wanted to say, you need to all these what is going on here online and it, it influences the streets in Egypt and others. Yes. You need all of this to be reported, to be uh, analyzed, uh, to have the, uh, the weapon of fatwa yeah. from Muslim moderate scholars like yes. us against them. And I will tell you, assalamu alaikum. But the, the first uh, important part, uh, <laughs> thank you. The, the important part of that is that although a little late, uh, the intelligence services, I think, are, have now come to full understanding uh, about the importance of social media in, in, beyond our traditional reliance on the capitals of most of our countries. And so I think we are getting there, and that is incredibly important. If we don't get those moderate messages on Islam uh, out, we get in trouble. One of the things we found in Afghanistan is that in doing interview, uh, interviews with uh, folks who were picked up off the battlefield that were uh, either Taliban or, or supporters of the Taliban in, in operations, in active operations, is that they had beliefs about what was in the Quran, but most of them hadn't read it. And why hadn't they read it? They were illiterate. The, it was 96% of them who came in. So they, were, they only believed what was in the Quran by what the radical... Islamists were telling them was in the Quran, and so we they brought in. I thought this was brilliant. They brought in uh, individuals who could have that uh, that moderate, real interpretation by reading the Quran, talking to them about what was in the Quran, and they've had I would argue at least moderate success in getting those individuals turned turned around a little bit. Excuse me, can we get to a question in the back, please? Yeah. You can talk to yeah, sure, the congressman sure, sure. later. Thank sure. You. There's a gentleman in the back. He's been raising his hands for a while. But you could get straight to the question, sir. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Daniel Mauro, Johns Hopkins University. The question, Mr. Chairman. Uh, can you elaborate a bit on the situation in the South Algeria, Mali area, and also about uh, the Nigerian and Somali eventually linking with this area? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> I argue that Mali was probably the first victim of Libya. One of the things that fell short and that, that I have been pretty passionate about is securing those West weapons caches. So those weapons caches, unfortunately, are still moving uh, at, at, a, at a rate that I, I find unacceptable. And I believe that when that new, the Tuaregs, uh, who were are very, very, very uh, well-schooled on moving contraband along that border, uh, have been extremely successful in doing it, and it empowered what I argue was that overthrow in Mali. So not that that it wasn't always there, but now they were well-financed <laughs> well and had really good weapon systems in which to do it. Uh, that's a huge problem, uh, and it's a problem we have yet to get our hands on. And we see that the al-Qaeda in the Maghreb is doing a good job themselves of marketing who they are 
and you know they weren't always with Al Qaeda. That wasn't their original intent. Their original formation uh, was to overthrow the government of Algeria. So they have expanded out, and I think they realize now that they have an opportunity to be an influential player uh, that help with the international push for acts of violence and have an impact in uh, North and Central uh, and Eastern Africa into a way that I find very troubling. So we, we understand where we're at. There are some things that are underway to try to slow that, stem that. Uh, I just, uh, we're hoping that within this budget, of which most of it will be in the classified annex, we will be better prepared and better resourced to handle what I think is a growing problem in Africa. All questions? Uh, Ma'am, go ahead. Hi, Maggie Smith, United States Army. Um, I have a question for you back to cybersecurity. Um, you've spoken about the public-private partnership. I was wondering if you could go into some of the international partnerships that we could develop in, um, in terms of protecting our own country and then helping on an international scale. Yeah, great. Go Army. Beat Navy. You're always supposed to start with that. I don't know where to <laughs> um, This is an important matter of fact. I, we uh, spent some good time yesterday with uh, our Australian uh, counterparts who are here, including the Attorney General, who is incredibly sharp. Um, we have a very robust uh, exchange now with our Five Eye partners, Australia and Great Britain and Canada and New Zealand. And uh, We're going to continue to build those relationships. It's critical that we have it. If we don't have those liaisons and partnerships uh, when it comes specifically to cyber, we're going to be in a lot of trouble because this is truly a global network. You know, we're not going to put up posts around the border of the United States and, and stop anything. Uh, we really do have to have a, a real-time flow of cyber threat information, and we have to do it with par uh, partners that we can trust, uh, partners that can keep information classified. Uh, so we're going through that process, and the DNI will go through that process, we hope, of trying to expand it to places where we know we can have that kind of a relationship where that information won't get out or won't be used against us. Because some of this stuff is incredibly complicated, sophisticated and dangerous. Um, you know, when you think, see things that, that uh, like Stutznet, uh, whose authorship is not known, but it was incredibly sophisticated, uh, now it's out in the public. You know, there's a lot of bad, bad folks out there trying to get their hands and understand how, how they did it. And once they do, come into a computer near you uh, is that next version of that virus. So we've got to be really good and really fast, and you have to have complete trust. One of the things that, that we worry about is when we pushed it out to our 5i countries, not just on cyber, but we had an incident with one of our 5i folks where somebody was recruited by a foreign intelligence service uh, and had access to a lot of very sensitive information because their, their requirements for auditing and other things weren't our requirements. So what part of that discussion was yesterday, we have got to get on the same page for our ability to audit and protect that information when we share it. And so if you can't meet a certain set of criteria, you're just not going to get the information to start out with if you can't meet that criteria. And oh, by the way, can we trust you once you do? Maybe in the front. I know you've had your hand up for a while, sir. Go Bulldogs. Go Bulldogs. Love it. Adrian College alum. Um, Stephen Rickard with the Open Society. You've, you've heard of Adrian College. It's the, uh, it's the Harvard is the Adrian College of the East. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
I, Stephen Rickard, Open Society Institute. I, I just wanted to first thank you for the efforts that you've uh, undertaken to restore bipartisan partisanship on the you know intelligence issues, foreign policy. I'm a former Pat Moynihan staffer. Uh, you know that was his approach uh, on the Intelligence Committee, and I know he'd be very uh, uh, excited about what you've done. There's an issue, though, that that there's still a lot of partisanship about, and that's interrogation. And in, influential Republicans like yourself, John McCain, Lindsey Graham, have said that your party believes and should believe that uh, interrogations have to be lawful, they have to be consistent with our values. But every year, it seems, on the anniversary of Osama bin Laden's killing, we have a debate about interrogation. Was it torture? Was it not torture? Is it that how we got him, or was it not how we got him? We've, Ali Soufan has written his book. Jose Rodriguez has written his book. They've had dueling 60 Minutes interviews. Isn't it time that we had, with due regard for sources and methods, a, a public record of what was done what was accomplished, and let the American people make up their mind. And, and as you probably know, the SSCI staff has done a very comprehensive look at this, and shouldn't that be declassified to the extent that it can, consistent with our national security? Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is one of the hardest things you do. As an old FBI agent, I was taught rapport building is one way to do it. But at the same time, that was always in an environment of which I controlled. And that's what I think when they got off into what was called enhanced interrogations. And by the way, the President of the United States still has the ability to do enhanced interrogations. Um, he protected his, his ability to do that in the law, and I respect his ability to protect it. Now, it's always at a very high level of approval if you're going to use anything that is an enhanced interrogation. By the way, waterboarding is not one of them. I mean, that's gone. Uh, I don't believe torture works. I do believe being uncomfortable can sometimes work. And that's where the big debate has been. What makes, what is uncomfortable and what is torture? That is a hard thing to do. I think we can have very clear, bright lines. My concern is if I tell you exactly what I can and cannot do to you, I can train to beat it. I can train to defeat it. And you can still get through somebody who's trained to defeat it. As you know, they'll tell you in the interrogation business, Everybody has their breaking point. Everybody. Just don't know when it is. Some can go longer. Some can go shorter. Everybody has their breaking point. My argument is do we really want to post that out there so somebody can train to buy themselves even more time? And I argue probably not the right decision. Should we have that honest discussion? Yeah, I think so. Um, can we do it in a way that doesn't jeopardize national security? I, I hope so. But again, I'm not sure I'd go down the list of things we can and can't do by law. Because trust me, they'll know it. Uh, they will know it quicker than you will know it. And I just think a little mystery when I walk in that room is okay. Uh, and here's the good news. A lot of the times with this rapport building, folks have been told something very different. I use the Taliban because I just got back from Afghanistan. It's a great example. Those interrogators, are, are these are national treasures, these guys. But they'll tell you that uh, it, it, the, the first 24 hours, is just letting these folks know that they're not going to do something pretty god-awful to them because they've been told that something pretty god-awful is going to happen to you. And I, think, I hope they keep saying that because it's a great way to defeat uh, their ability to, uh, to, to hang in there. They generally want to end up cooperating it much sooner uh, without using any enhanced interrogation technique, which none are approved, by the way, right now. They just have the ability to approve it. Does that make sense? I hope. Uh, uh, but just if there's a secret list, 
won't people assume that waterboarding and other things that you would not want on the list are on it? Don't we have to be transparent about what we do? Yeah, well, we already fairly are. The Army, man the Army Field Manual, if you read the Army Field Manual, you will get a pretty good idea of what they can and cannot do. That's already out there. And my argument is, did we have to tell them everything? But that's an old FBI. A little, mis little mystery is always a good thing. <laughs> well, sir, please. Sir, could you please uh, share with us your evaluation of how well the U.S. intelligence community has integrated itself with the larger U.S. government effort to pivot towards East Asia? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, for a long time we spent a, a lot of effort, and I was as guilty as anyone on this, on that terror threat because it was so immediate. It was, we were still trying to get our arms around it after 9-11. Uh, we fundamentally changed the community. We went back to the human collection side. So we were spending a lot of time and effort trying to build that capacity up to target this particular problem. The good news is just because we weren't paying attention as much as we probably should have those first few years, uh, the CIA and others were, right? They didn't walk away from their missions. Uh, and so as chairman, I said, listen, we've got to be, we've got to be good. We have to hit on all cylinders like we ask them to be hitting on all cylinders. And so we've done that and engaged in that. I think they're doing an exceptionally good job. I think, uh, again, our Australian partners have, are just fantastic. Uh, we're going to have more troops uh, located in Australia. We had long conversations about that good thing. Uh, and finding those liaison partners that we can and should work with um, and improve on them is already well underway. So I feel pretty good about it. I think, um, you know, I think Americans would be proud about how that has been pushed out from an intelligence perspective about collection of information on you know, China and others, uh, and partners that you would probably be find surprising who want to work with the United States, because they're a little, they're a little bit curious about what China's intentions are in the long run. Uh, that's a good motivator to work with us, because we, we have some of those same questions. Uh, sir, go ahead. Thanks. Um, Chairman Rogers, I'm Garrett Mitchell, and I write the Mitchell Report. I want to ask uh, about something that didn't make the list today, and I'm wondering whether that's uh, good news or, or not. And that is, uh, there's been over the course of the last year in particular, sort of uh, uh, peaks of reporting on, on the, either the actuality or the possibility that, um, that the, uh, the, the jihadists uh, have infiltrated uh, in Mexico and ostensibly elsewhere in Latin America. And, uh, and then it goes away and then it surfaces again. Uh, and I'm wondering whether uh, that's something you can talk about and if so, whether uh, th that's um, in the realm of fancy or something that uh, has a, a real possibility to loom up uh, where we least expect it. Well, I, let me give you a, a quick example of why. And I can't talk about operational details, those kinds of things. Uh, but I can tell you the bad guys are aware of the weaknesses of the United States on its southern border. And I use bad guys in all of the adversaries of the United States, nation state, non-nation state. And if you look, the best public example to me was the fact that 
Iran in an effort to blow up a Saudi ambassador in our nation's capital, by the way, which should offend all of us, uh, was using what they perceived as a weakness on our southern border in order to get people and weapons into the country. And I want to say this for the, for the reporters who are here, because there was a lot of punditry on this that said, oh, what a bunch of buffoons, they didn't know what they were doing. Imagine this, they needed somebody who was, uh, would not attract attention by going back to Iran, to the United States. They found a dual citizen who had an arm's length re, uh, relation to somebody in the MOIS. They needed somebody who had the ability to travel south of the border with some credibility. He had family in Texas who had plenty of opportunities and business opportunities across the border who could be put in touch with one of the organized crime families. And if you've read anything about what they're doing down there, incredibly brutal, huge problem for this country. There's a whole other, we could talk, talk an hour on what's going on in Mexico. And, but for one thing, would we know about this operation? He went out of all those crime families, five to six, robust. He went to one guy who, if you did a criminal vetting of him, would be John Gotti's John Gotti, right? <laughs> right? This guy was a bad dude, right? Moved drugs, killed people, did all of the right things to be the, on the ACEs list for the criminality report. Went to him and said, hey, I got a deal for you. We need you to get people, weapons, and surveillance. We'll pay you a bunch of money. We'll give you the target at the second meeting. He said, sure, I'll do it. That guy had been recruited by the DEA about a year and a half earlier on a drug case. What if he had gone with one of the other crime families and asked that same question? We would have a very different discussion today. So I, I saw all of these folks, and by the way, they said, oh, it was buffoonery the way they set up the bank account. We set up the bank account. <laughs> right? I mean, that's the only reason we knew where the bank account was. I mean, the, the, it just gets my blood going that people say, oh, it was a bunch of buffoons, and he was a used car dealer. You know, the crew boss in uh, Chicago, when I worked organized crime, was a used car dealer, pretty smart guy. <laughs> I mean, this notion that this was not, this was a bunch of buffoons stumbling around. If, that, if it weren't for that one lucky break, and that was a lucky break, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. So if Iran knows it's there, you can imagine that other folks know, or at least believe there's a perception that we have a, 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 a problem on the southern border and it may be easy to enter the United States through the southern border. And it's something that we're worried about, pay attention to. And, you, and again, when you look at the violence down in Mexico, just, just I've never seen anything like it. Unbelievable. Uh, question in the front. I'm just wondering, do you, I mean, do you feel the average citizen, though, is just in la-la land and they really don't care about the border stuff? That some of us who like the old life, we have flat rate consciousness of stuff and do our, you know, by neighborhood, by neighborhood, and read the Hills Global Affairs blog. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it does help to have it does help to have organizations that are doing. You, if you pick up a national newspaper, and you, you, Washington Post has an international flavor to it. Certainly, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. But you start getting out in America, and it's just not there. And it's I don't think it's people are in la la land. I think they're so concerned about their jobs and their families. Well, I think the more we talk about it, the more we talk about it, and the more 
educational forums that we have for it, and like the, the and I don't, I'm not saying that flippantly, no. the more that people have the opportunity to kind of catch up on these things, I think it will help kind of raise the awareness. This is not an unusual thing in our history. This happens a lot in our history. And it's really up to those people who have an interest and who have an appreciation for it to try to, you know, get, a, get some tools for communication about what's going on, I think. I'm getting the signal that you're going to have to run to votes pretty soon, so okay. I think we have time for one more question. Gentlemen in front, please. Hello, sir. Oh, I'm Vashem from Yemen Embassy. Uh, first of all, I have to say uh, I apologize on behalf of all the Yemenis that the underwear plots coming out of Yemen has been keeping me busy. Um, I hope no more underwear threats coming up. Yes. Um, just it's not their underwear I was worried about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, just wanted to hear your comments about the new administration with President Hadi, the corporation, um, yeah. anything not uh, classified that you would like to... You know, here's, here's the good news. We, had a, we, we didn't find Yemen last week. Right? We've been, there's been a long-standing understanding, at least from al-Qaeda, especially core leadership, that they thought Yemen could be a place. You know, there, because of, there was the separatist movement, uh, there was that al-Qaeda element in the south. You had the Houthis. So they believed that there was just enough there that they could uh, find safe haven. Little did we know that they thought they could actually hold territory in the south. Uh, I think the, the new president has done a phenomenal job, and we have a great working relationship. Um, and I, I, my hat's off. He has been great about getting the Yemeni's uh, military to push south. That is hugely helpful uh, and disruptive to their ability to conduct operations in a way that they used to think that they could do. And so I, I, I'm very, very favorable on the new president. Um, in many ways, he's uh, easier to work with. We have, I think we've all joined in a common purpose of that's a problem for you, and it's a problem for us. Uh, we'd like to work together on this, and I, you can see a great spirit of cooperation. So I'm, I'm very encouraged where we're at today, uh, and I look forward to even better things happening in the, in the months ahead. But thank you for, uh, please pass along to the president my thanks uh, for their effort. And the intelligence service is there, very good, uh, and your military services are really stepping up. It's a very difficult place to operate in the South, and they are doing an exceptionally good job. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate Thanks. it very thank much. You. Can you yeah,